Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. Church, are you easily intimidated? Have you ever had someone in your life attempting to conspire or maybe plot against you or bully you or manipulate you through distraction, passive aggression? I mean, come on. One thing that levels us all out is that we're just a bag of trust issues, aren't we? My dad used to tell me that the ice cream truck played music when it was out of ice cream. I mean, we all have our, we all have our stuff to deal with. But when you think about, when you think about the word conspiracy, when you think about that word, it means several things, several different people. Some of us think that people, places, we have specific memories of when we felt conspired against or manipulated or tricked or betrayed. Some might move to the past or even be in a present situation of abuse or, or, or betrayal. But if you are a Christ follower, you are connected to other Christ followers in that question of have you ever felt intimidated by an enemy because we all have a common adversary. We all have something out, someone out to completely take us out. And 1 Peter 5.8 gives him a name, actually. Tells us several things about this common enemy, Satan, here in 1 Peter 5.8 that we should be aware of as followers of Jesus Christ. And, and so we have this adversary, and he is named, and he is likened in that verse to a hungry lion. Now, there's not much that gets in the way of a hungry lion and what that hungry lion wants to eat. And, and I've often thought, what would happen if at any time we could see what's actually going on in the spiritual realm around us? You would see a lot of weak faiths become very strong in that moment, I think. Paul writes in Ephesians that fights the forces of evil in the heavenly realms. But at the same time, where we have that main common adversary, we also have enemies or adversaries that come in the form of people. As recent as this past week, we've heard of several different terrorist attacks on people of different religions. And the threat of terrorist attacks should be nothing new for Christians Centuries ago, the Apostle Paul warned, put on the full armor of God. Why? The schemes of the devil, our, our enemy, is not new to the tool of deception, to the tool of trickery and other schemes to try to destroy us or, at the very least, neutralize us into worthlessness for the Great Commission. What he's called to do, by the way, is not to hurt us, not to maim us, not to distract us or move us into a brand new direction. His old, which is why we've begged people to understand the seriousness of sin and the dangers attached to it. Sin is not a joke. Sin will eventually take you out because there's a prerogative by a real thing behind it. The book of Nehemiah, if you are familiar with what we've been going through as a series here, God's purpose and plans for his people, I've very much enjoyed uh, this book. Uh, For the last two months, we've looked at a man who lived in 4th century B.C. uh, named Nehemiah. He was a commitment to his God. The book of Nehemiah is a brother book of the book of Ezra. But Nehemiah is about rebuilding what has been torn down, sort of restoring what has been 
uh, destroyed. You see a lot of repenting and a returning back to God and his promises. So his promises are kept and they're scattered throughout this book. But the biblical narrative moves right to our Messiah, King Jesus. And Nehemiah is likened to him uh, all the time in his faith. And we, the New Testament church, now on the other side of that, on the other side of the resurrection and the ascension, we live out faithful lives within the community on mission as we wait for King Jesus to return. But the book of Nehemiah starts with him not comfortable, not in convenience, but in exile. And he finds out that the terrible condition of Jerusalem's city, where everything's torn down and broken, this is God's holy city, this mattered to him. And when Nehemiah hears this, instead of complaining from his mission, his God answers him, his God responds to his obedience. Nehemiah's job at the time was to be a cupbearer for the king. And Nehemiah asked the king if he could sort of have a passport back to homeland, to Jerusalem, to rebuild the walls. Could he have materials? And the king granted the request. So in Ezra, you see the people rebuild the temple. In Nehemiah, you see people rebuild the wall around the city, gates and everything. But what would a good story be without a villain, right? What would Star Wars be without Darth Vader? Luke Skywalker here, Nehemiah, was not dealing with just one villain, but three villains. Enemies of the people of God. They're named in, I think, chapter 4, and then they kind of move on. And here we are introduced to them again, reintroduced to them. They pop up right at the beginning of our passage today. Their names are Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. And these three were openly anti-Semitic, which made them enemies of God. And when Nehemiah came in town to rebuild, these three did not want the place rebuilt. And Nehemiah responds by building it anyway, because that's the approval of man. And who cares about that? He is on a mission from God. During the progression of chapter 4, the villains get angry. They start to mock and slander him. It's actually quite interesting, their, their type of slander. Nehemiah 4.3 Tobiah yells out, your walls are so weak it couldn't support a fox. Sort of a weird way to go on that, Tobiah, like a weird cut down. But Nehemiah thinks that smack talk could turn into physical threats, so he starts to arm some of his guards and encourages everyone to keep on working. And then he gives this amazing, stirring speech in Nehemiah 4.14 through chapter 5 and through our last two sermons, which you can find available online. Pastor Neil has clearly highlighted the biblical response to class warfare among God's people and looking to Nehemiah as a man not out for self-gain, ultimately, but a man who at the toughest of times shows discipline and generosity in a manner of Christ. So now here we are in chapter 6. The wall, not yet finished, with Nehemiah's three villains still on the prowl. So if you are able, will you please stand with me as we read Nehemiah 6 together. Now when Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sambalat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come, let us meet together at Hecaphirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Symbolic for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. Think about that word, open letter, by the way. Verse 6, in it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. 
And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him saying, no such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from their work and it will not be done. But now, this is Nehemiah, O God, strengthen my hands. Verse 10. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabal, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple. For they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember, Tobiah and Sambalat, oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. As always, church, may we remember the power is in the word of God. You may be seated. So here we are. There are breaches in the wall. The wall has been repaired and the wall is complete except for the doors and gates. Hey, real quick, the doors and the gates, pretty important part of the wall. Kind of no point to a wall without the doors and gates. So we have the doors and the gates not yet finished. In chapter 6, 1 through 14, you will see three schemes of Satan. The first is intrigue, the second is innuendo, and the third is intimidation. You'll notice in each scheme, Satan moved first, by the way, and then Nehemiah had to respond to what was happening. So this morning, looking at this passage, we were reminded of a very, very important truth. To complete the work God has given us to do, we must discern and resist Satan's many schemes say no to the conspiracies of our adversaries and live this life fearless of our enemies and focused on Christ Jesus in all that we say and do. Satan's first scheme here is intrigue. Intrigue is the secret planning of doing something detrimental to someone else. So what is the first thing we see in this scheme of intrigue? Satan especially targets leaders with this scheme of intrigue. You've probably seen the Gary Larson far side cartoon that shows two deer standing upright. One has a huge target on his chest and the other deer says to him, bummer of a birthmark, Earl. (laughs) Every Christian leader, every Christian leader has a target on their chest. Because if Satan can bring down the leader, if Satan can take out the captain, he can take out the squad. He will cause extensive damage to the flock by going after the flock's leader. I see this in church after church and in family after family. Your your elder council here, we talk extensively. We make a matter of our meetings to spend time, not in just business or items or ministry, but focusing on accountability in the lives of your leaders. Do you feel safe? Do you feel supported? Do you feel encouraged by the accountability that's around you? Sunday school teachers should be having the same conversations with one another. One thing we tell new pastors in training here is that they are now an even bigger target for Satan. 
and his helpers. Pastors fallen all over the news all the time. Moral failure, leaving careers, leaving churches. We've seen suicides, husbands, the leaders in their home, ignoring their wives and children, if not because of work, then maybe because of their smartphone. One of the reasons we see such a poor result for Bible studies in men under 45 is because I don't think that men under 45 think that there is a real enemy that's after them. Because if you thought there was a real enemy, maybe you'd be a bit more concerned with preparation. When in this world and in this culture did being prepared for the battle signify a weakness? In the Bible, being prepared for these things is a sign of wisdom and strength. It's proverbial in nature. Preparation for the fight isn't an act of fear. It is one of wisdom and responsibility. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And here we have the sin This sin of intrigue that comes during distractions in our life. Distractions often come with empty promises of satisfaction attached to them. If I can just chase this a while and not think about my responsibilities, I'll feel so much better. When in all actuality, it ends up with you feeling much worse. That's why we try to be a Christ-centered, family-equipping church. You often hear Neil say, keep the main thing the main thing. Because when you don't keep the main thing, the main thing, it means all your focus and even your adoration, and dare I say, even your worship, is on things that will not satisfy you, will not bring you peace, and will not bring you joy everlasting. Happiness and joy are very different things. Happiness is often based on external things that change like the weather, and joy is something that lasts forever, embeds itself inside you no matter what season you're running through. One of the scariest phrases that I see in Nassau County when we talk to other churches or people even in this church or whoever, uttered by men who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ but whose lives don't look like followers of Jesus Christ, they say this often, and I don't know what to make of it anymore. God and I are good, Pastor. Don't you worry about it. You see, that's not a, that's not a mind frame or a mindset that says they are prepared for battle or that they even signify that one exists. Do they understand what's at stake? They'll say, I'll be fine as long as I'm not in a leadership position. Look, whether you're a leader or not, if you're a Christ follower, you are an enemy of Satan, and he is going to be after you with his schemes. Note two things about Satan's intrigue here. Satan, one, uses subtle deceptions. Subtle deceptions. These aren't huge distractions the size of Macy Day parade floats that are like entering our lives and we'd be fools not to see them. They happen gradually, they happen subtly, and they happen to people who live lives without personal spiritual disciplines. He works in subtle deception and plausible sounding appeals. But his intent is always the same. Satan's intent is always the same. It's to destroy us. Read the first letter to Nehemiah in this sense down at your Bibles. In chapter 6, kind of paraphrase it. Come, let's meet together. We should try to iron out our differences. You're in favor of peace, aren't you, Nehemiah? Don't you want good relationships with your neighbors? We just want to, this is my favorite, foster mutual understanding. I mean, it all sounds so good, doesn't it? You'd have to be a real bully, a real unloving bully, not to be for unity, not to be for peace. Except... Nehemiah rightly perceives what's happening, that their intent was to ambush him if he went. 
Satan still uses all sorts of innocent-sounding appeals to lure believers into a trap. He isn't playing games with you. He wants to devour you. I have seen him repeatedly use the trap of luring a Christian person, young person, usually a woman, into a relationship with an unbeliever. Of course the unbelieving guy is always a nice guy. That's how he was able to lure you. Mean people are terrible at luring. You want to come with me on a date? That doesn't work. False teachers and preachers lure. Man, they are so good at luring, they will have you convinced that your pastors hate you and hate them. And you will deny people that have invested in you because they're trying to warn you that what they're preaching and teaching is a false gospel. It's the craziest part of being a pastor I've ever seen. The loyalty to false teachers and false preachers in Christian communities blows my mind. I'm still not used to it. You should be shocked when someone explains to you what the false teachers are doing is unbiblical. It's not a pride thing. Don't make it a pride thing. They're good at talking. They're working for Satan. False gospels don't save. Many pastors and Christians' leaders are getting lured into Satan's traps of compromising sound doctrine now, and the reason they're compromising sound doctrine is for unity. I have heard over and over again, the Bible does not say the world will know us for our correct doctrine, but for our love. We need to set aside the matters that divide us and come together on the matters we agree on. The problem with that approach is that often in order to have unity with those preach false doctrines, pastors have to set aside essentials of the gospel of Jesus Christ in order to do so. One of the main ones being we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We are saved apart from our merit or works. You cannot backtrack on that. That's the gospel. In fact, I'll take it a step farther. Why not? You see, we will often see churches divide and communities divide because of the gospel itself. The very gospel and its nature divides. You can get a lot of things wrong about the Bible and they not be first tier salvific issues. There are several things where we can disagree and it not be a salvific issue. You can't get the gospel wrong. It has to be right for it to work. And often people will tell, hear me say that and they'll, they'll think I'm saying it from an unloving place because they don't like what they're hearing. And the first thing out of their mouth is that's not very loving. No, what's not loving is lying to them because you want them to like you. That's not loving. False teachers can feed you as much sugar as they want on this fallen rock, but we as a church have a responsibility in this mission to look towards eternity. And that might just come with us inconvenienced and a little less comfortable. It may be. In fact, it's promised. It sort of will. The Apostle Paul, if you need an example from our guy here, 33% author of the New Testament, opposed the Judaizers. Why did he oppose the Judaizers? These men claimed to believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior. They believed he is the Jewish Messiah. Why did Paul oppose them? Because they said that in addition to believing in Jesus, you had to be circumcised to be saved. They added something to the gospel. They added this one biblically referenced work to faith. That's all. And Paul said, Galatians 1, 8 through 9, let them be damned. 
He said that if you add any human work in order to be justified, you are severed from Christ. You have fallen from grace. Galatians 5.4 The reason why this has to be so emphatic is because Satan's aim is to destroy you through subtle deceptions and plausible sounding appeals. Are you against Christian unity? What's wrong with you? I'm I'm for unity in Christ Jesus, and that's not apart from the true gospel. So that's what we need to be about. You can deliver the truth and not be a jerk. You can. It's the people who are all truth and no love that are brutality. But truth and love together is the gospel. So how are we to respond to the devil's scheme of intrigue? Nehemiah did this, resisted Satan's intrigues by standing firm in his devotion to God and God's glory. He says this, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. He wasn't being arrogant. He just wasn't finished with what God had told him to do. He didn't allow an unnecessary meeting with the enemy to distract him from that one mission, that one aim. So the question I have for us is, what are we allowing to distract us from our mission? As believers, the lens by which we see everything else is to glorify God by knowing Jesus Christ and then by living a life where we are conformed to his character and it begins at the heart level. Bottom line is anything that pulls you away from that priority, even if you call it a ministry, is a ploy of the devil. In this passage, we don't just see Satan use intrigue through this conspiracy of the villains. We see him use innuendo. Innuendo, verses 5 through 9. And what is Nehemiah's response there? Forthright rebuttal coupled with prayer. So just some context. After four frustrated attempts to lure Nehemiah into an ambush, the enemy then shifted tactics. Remember, the devil is relentless in his pursuit. He is a hungry lion. He sent an open letter to Nehemiah that contained a rumor accusing Nehemiah of plotting to rebel from King Artaxerxes, and become the king himself. The tactic reveals a couple things. Number one, Satan spreads slanderous false rumors against godly leaders and followers of Christ. Do not be shocked if you are at the receiving end of lies, gossip, or slander if you are following Jesus Christ. Normally, and this is some context that helped me out a lot that I didn't really know before I went over this for the sermon, letters between officials were sealed and private. So when it says open letter, it's sort of a big deal. It sort of shows Symbolic's cards there and what he's trying to accomplish. Symbolic knew that the servant who delivered this letter would read it. It's an open letter. Which, how many of us have read a letter that was open we shouldn't have read? None of you, you goody two-shoes, right? <laughs> the nice thing about a rumor is you only have to launch it with one gossip. And it will spread like a virus from person to person. Growing more malicious often like a game of telephone as it travels. So Satan instigates it, but he depends heavily on the wildfire that human beings and their original sin create when they get a hold of such gossip. These specific attacks were meant to destroy the credibility of Nehemiah, of a godly leader. Did you know what Nehemiah was planning? Yeah, no, I'd wondered why he was working so hard on that wall. It sure makes sense now. He wants to rebel. Oh, yeah. My guess is that everyone in this room has not been or has uh, been on the receiving end of such malicious slander before, or perhaps you played a part in its movement. 
the reason we have biblical principles in place, the reason for spiritual disciplines is that you and I were born under the nature of Adam and are prone to sin. We are drawn to sin. We are sin. We live in that sin against a holy God, naturally. We live in a world that will deny original sin doctrine when something terrible happens. Do you know why they do that? You know why there always has to be another reason why someone did something evil other than that person is just naturally evil? Do you know why? Because as soon as they admit original sin doctrine, as soon as they understand that man was born evil, guess what? That kills their God of self. It kills their ideology that, look, everyone's good deep down. Everything they've based every ideology on is everyone has a little good in them. No one is righteous. No, not one. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You know what? You're not better than everybody else. You're equal to everyone else because you were born under the same nature of Adam. You are prone to sin. That's what's so great about salvation. That once we were lost and now we are found. Christians are people living with the blinders off who are to have grace for people who still have the blinders on. That's why we can't judge people and base non-Christians and their behaviors on biblical principles. They don't know. They don't get it. You do, and you're in the world and not of it. So what are you allowing yourself to be distracted by? What blinders are you trying to put back on? Bodhi Bauckham says we see this original sin nature all the time. We just deny it. He says we blatantly see it in our children. Not my children. My children are perfect. No, that's not true. Um, Bodhi Bauckham says this, God made them small so they wouldn't kill us, and he made them cute so we wouldn't kill them. <laughs> Some of the best theology I've ever heard. Every parent's like, that's scary how true that is, man. Every person is inherently in need of something. When people refuse the gospel, it's often because they don't feel like they are in need of any change at all. Or help. Or savior. Another thing that we see here in the second one is God hates gossip. Yet it very well may be one of Satan's most successful tools to take down the church. The truth is, elusive, disparaging remarks will obliterate relationships. The Bible is crystal clear on this matter. We preserve relationships by obliterating slander. Don't be afraid to take slander and rumor and gossip out. Be kind, be loving, but stand firm in those moments. Proverbs 6.13 warns us of all people who speak like this, who winks maliciously with his eyes, signals with his feet, and motions with his fingers. I depend on my wife's ability to discern, okay? She has the gift of discernment. I do not have that gift of discernment. I'm the guy walking back from the front door with cut-go knives like we needed these. Like this was a good purchase. You know, it just doesn't, it's not good that I answer the door anymore, which is very poor. So the concept here is like, look, honey, what do you think about that? What do you think about that situation? I need your discernment here because I'm like ready to go for it. And so there is a good thing in couples where one person has the discernment and the other person's like, what do you think? Those are good relationships, man. Don't be in fear of those. Healthy, God-glorifying relationships between spouses or family or church family, they can help squash the schemes of the devil who is out to destroy and divide. 
But at the core of what we do in our behavior, we see what Nehemiah resisted, Satan's innuendos, with major, major biblical elements, with the truth and with prayer. Charles Spurgeon brilliantly writes in lectures to my students in in his chapter called The Blind Eye and the Deaf Ear, falsehoods usually carry their own refutation somewhere about them and sting themselves to death. Some lies especially have a peculiar smell which betrays their rottenness to every honest nose. Your blameless life will be your best defense, and those who have seen it will not allow you to be condemned so readily as your slanderers expect. Whether leaders in the church or in the family decide to remain silent or to reply to false accusations, however we respond, church, it's important that we remember prayer and keeping on with the work that God has given us to do in truth and in love are always the right decisions. Always. So in the first nine verses, you already see two schemes, and then Satan goes on relentlessly as he does. And number three, Satan goes on to use intimidation. Intimidation. Because, church, it is a very real concept to say that enemies will scare us into wrong behavior that will ruin our witness. Here are the enemy, if you look down at your Bibles, here are the enemy, I think it's like in verse 10 through 12, He combines deception with intimidation and fear. If you look down at your text, a prophet named Shemaiah was confined at home. We do not know if he was ill or if he was doing this as sort of a prophetic drama as the prophets commonly did. But he was not hourly with the enemy, although Nehemiah would later discern that Tobiah and Sabalat had hired him. Shemaiah called for Nehemiah and then suggested that the two of them meet within the temple and close the doors. And he says this, for they are coming to kill you and they are coming to kill you at night. So, on the outside, here's what we have. A man claiming to have a word from God that could save Nehemiah's life, right? Looks innocent. Hide in the temple while you can because the enemy is going to kill you some night, sometime at night while you are asleep. But here's the thing. If Nehemiah had followed that counsel, he would not have been a good leader. And even more, he would have sinned. Number one, Nehemiah wasn't a priest, so he couldn't enter the temple. That's why he says, who am I where I could go into the temple and live? I would die. Number two, if he had taken the counsel of man rather than the counsel of God, he would have been seen as fearful rather than fearless in the eyes of man. This was the goal, right? Kill the man by taking out his reputation. Kill the man by going after how the world sees him. How does Nehemiah resist this one? With fearless obedience and prayer. Are we, are we going to prayer as quickly as we should go to prayer whenever something really dangerous or disturbing shows up? Why are we hesitating? Why are we not running to prayer in the same fashion Nehemiah is? Should a man like me flee, he says, and could one such as I go into the temple to save his life? And 6.11, I will not go in. One thing that gave Nehemiah this insight was that he knew God's word. His knowledge of God's word saved his witness and saved his reputation. He isn't planning to wing it when the trouble finds him. That's not what preparation looks like. That's laziness. He knows the word of God. He is prepared with the sword of the spirit because there is a very real war and a very real enemy. At the end of the passage, Nehemiah refused Shemaiah's counsel and then he reverted to his common practice of lifting up his situation to God in prayer, asking God to take care of his enemies. Nehemiah was focused on his God, fearless of the approval of man and the schemes 
of the devil. So church, what are we supposed to take away from this passage? When Nehemiah is in fear, he turns to his Lord and he prays. When he is in doubt, he turns to his Lord and he prays. When anxiety occurs, he turns to his Lord. When he is asked to lead, he turns to his Lord. When he fears the king, a man, he remembers his calling. He focuses on his God. We might be in a different time period, but the levels of distraction are high. They feel high. There's everywhere else we could possibly look other than focusing on Christ Jesus or our spiritual walk. The intimidation and fear still very much feel real and next door and present. See, we can recite the right answers for the problem of sin and shame. We can understand and verbalize the true focus on rainy or sunny days. If we aren't running to God in everything, if we have no fear and reverence for our Lord, then the fear and anxiety we have for man should not be surprising to anyone. Cultural Christians are all a belief and no behavior. Professed and outspoken, but when tried, are cowardly in their commitment to Christ and his mission. In our fights, both corporately and personal, is there a chance we live in fear and reverence of the wrong things, church? Are we a church that cares more about the approval of man than we do the approval of our God? What do we have fear in? What's bringing us anxiety? Because the closer you walk with idols, the closer you walk with anxiety. Because you realize that they can't fulfill you and give you what you need. Those idols will lead to nothing but emptiness. and Jesus will never leave you empty. You see, in order to live fearlessly for the calling of Christ Jesus, you must walk with a healthy reverence of your God. To know that what he is capable of is so much more than what you are capable of. Matthew 6.34, and we'll end here, is a fascinating verse and relates perfectly to what our brother Nehemiah is going through in this version, in this uh, passage of 6. It says this, Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself, sufficient for the day of its own trouble. You see, this isn't a call to carelessness or inaction, just hoping everything will be all right. Trust in the Lord is not you doing nothing. Faith is active. Faith isn't lazy or dead. There are works that wellspring from it. But what are we to do? How are we to deal with what's hurting us and what's plaguing us? Give it over to the Lord. Church, quit hoarding what is hurting you. Salvation is realizing or recognizing that you haven't done a great job at controlling your own life, so you are submitting the control to someone else. Funny but not so funny truth here is that every moment of your day is either an obstacle to your faith or an opportunity to obey your Lord. When I was younger, I called baloney on that. Like, I didn't really believe that. I was like, that's a bit of an overkill. But life in general, man, matures you, teaches you that that's very much true. Every moment of every day is either an obstacle to your faith or an opportunity to obey. I took... um, Took Ellie Jo, our oldest daughter, to Disney for the day on Friday. Kind of surprised her with it. Like woke her up at like 5:30 a.m. and uh, which was a terrible idea. And then uh, we went into the got into the car and we were excited to get there. And um, she talked to me for three hours straight, like three 
She was just fascinated that we had time together, and there was no other kid in there, and so she, I, I hope she loved it. Um, I know I needed that time with her, but we get to the park, and it dawns on me, um, it's spring break for, like, the entire state, right? Like, um, and apparently the economy's just doing really well, because everyone and their mom is at that park. Uh, like, they're all there. It's just, it's amazing how many people go, and, uh, but I'm saying that, and I'm there too, right? So, like, whatever. Uh, so we go and I'm like, no, wait, spring break's Monday through Friday. And I go up to like a Disney employee, like they're going to fix it. Like they're like, you didn't know what spring break was. And so I go up and I'm like, why it's Friday. Is there, they go, no, no, spring breaks change now in this County. You get two extra days in spring break. It goes back a week, Thursday and Friday. And then Monday through Friday, I go, awesome. So I start looking at the wait times to all the rides. Right. And there's like 45 minutes for the carousel of progress. Like so bad, like Disney goers are like, that is terrible. Like that is, it's a small world, hour and a half wait. You're like, it's a small world, really? That ride's not even that great? (laughs) So I'm just walking around, I'm trying to make excuses up to Ellie of why we can't stay in line. So that one has, there's an illness there. You know, like we're trying to walk around. (laughs) That whole area cautioned off, Ellie, sorry. Uh, and, And you know what, ma'am, it's like three, four hours in and my patience is wearing thin. I was up early, they messed up my coffee, you know, because this is a me-centered world, and, and like the world didn't get the memo that this was a special day with me and my daughter, so like everyone there is acting like we aren't the main attraction, it was really weird, and so no one is, is, is really happy in this line, and we end up going to this one line where we, we we're meeting adults dressed up as princesses, that's what you pay for, you're meeting people, strangers dressed up as princesses, yeah, judge all you want, my kid enjoys it, uh, so we, we go there, and we're in the line, and I was just done, man. It was like four or five hours in. We're hungry. I was just over it. And there are people doing something in line in front of me that just, it, it bothers me. It sets me off a little bit. Um, and it's when, it, there's a customary thing in a line, okay? When you're in a line and there's tons of space in front of you, I, I know that people are at the end of that space. Like, I get it. I know, I know you can't go through them. You move up. You fill that space. Because the only thing keeping the sanity in my head is that we're moving. If I feel like I'm staying still, I will freak out, right? Go up in the line, right? So I'm just kind of sitting there. I'm holding Ellie Jo, whose feet hurt. I'm just like, what a terrible idea this was. So I'm sitting there, and, I, and, I, and it's families just on their phones. They're not moving up. I'm like, move up, please, with my mind. And so uh, I'm sitting there going, okay, so, okay, if Amy Jo was here, she's not. If Amy Jo was here... She would tell me to remember my calling as a Christian. <laughs> I'm going through the checklist. You know, when you've been together for 10 years, you have a checklist that starts up. She's like, remember my calling as a Christian, remember my calling as a pastor, and don't embarrass her or the kids. Those are the three, <laughs> the three main rules in that order. She's a holy woman. In that order. She's last. So I, I say, but here's the deal. Amy Jo isn't here, so fair game, right? Like... <laughs> She's not here. God in his providence wants me to address this issue. So I still don't. I still hold it. Pastor Neil, you've been very proud of me. I was chill like the whole time until their seven-year-old kid comes, finds us, leans his, uh, his, his arm on the, like the railing there. He faces Ellie Joe and I, and he just starts open mouth coughing. Like no, like just a shower of bacteria. It's just all over us. And I'm reading, I'm thinking of every documentary I've ever seen, you know, like everyone on bacteria, I'm just like dying inside. And Ellie Joe's even going, what's wrong with him? 
You know, like she's just like, is he okay? Or... And so I, I said, that's it. That's it. I was, <laughs> I was let the line thing go. But the coughing all over me and my kid, right? Like this is about to go West Nassau real fast, right? <laughs> West Nassau. So I say, okay, here's the deal. I sit Ellie Joe down and I'm about to address the dad, right? I don't even know what I'm going to say. Terrible for your pastor to say something without thinking. That was what was going to happen, right? So I'm about to say it. Hey, man. And as soon as I say it, as soon as I start the words, he goes, hey, man, nice Jaguars hat. I go, if he's making fun of me, I promise to goodness right now, right? <laughs> it's very careful what comes out of your mouth, sir, at this time. He goes, congratulations on the new quarterback. And I go, yeah. <laughs> I was ready to go, you know? Have you ever been ready to go and you get stopped and you're like, I don't really know what to do? I was bewildered. And so I'm sitting there going, yeah, we overpaid. And we start talking, and we start to have more things in common. And before I know it, it's 15 minutes. And he lets me know that he's coming back in a month to stay in Jacksonville. But he may come out to Amelia Island to the Ritz because he found a good deal online. And I go, without even thinking, I'm, like, I'm a pastor at Amelia Baptist down the road. And he goes, we should check that church out on Sunday morning. And I go, yeah. I go, you should, you should do that. And he goes, God bless, see you later, and walks over. And I'm just sitting there like the wind out of my sails. And I'm sitting there going, is it, is it possible that God's so powerful, he redeemed a moment that had not yet happened? Is God so amazing that he, when he says he goes before you, he, he actually goes before you and prevents you from sabotaging what he has planned? The point or the concept here is, just for a sec, like I'm a flawed person. Everyone can attest to that. But the mentality of me-centeredness is dangerous to the mission. And when they're here in a month, you'll recognize them because their kid will be coughing everywhere, I'm sure. But... Church, and I'll end here, I know I went over. When we fall into the temptations to think of ourselves only, we are robbed of the perception necessary for the mission of Christ. To, to walk by the light and the lamp of his word is actually preparation for the times God will allow to happen to us so that we can come out focused and fearless on the other side. Trusting him and obeying him in the most trying of times will actually result in our good and his glory. Why? Fear does not empty tomorrow of its sorrows. It only empties today of its strength. Trials, things that are bothering us, things that are afflicting us, things that are making us downtrodden. They teach us what we really are. They dig up the soil and they let us see what we are made of. So let us trust in a holy God as a naturally unholy people and let's walk towards the mission that's before us. Let's pray. Father God, we are appreciative of all you've done. Thank you for the ability to acknowledge Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior. Father, your son was sent here to die, to be pierced for our transgressions. My hope is that if there's anyone in here who does not yet profess faith in Jesus Christ, that everything we've talked about starts with that submission, that repentance, that confession, that you are exactly who you've said you are. May the church be who we've promised to be. May we be on mission. May we be on fire for you. May we sing these songs like we mean these songs because you are mighty to save and you've never stopped being mighty to save. 
You are able. And when we live our lives focused upon your power, Father God, we can remain focused on our Christ and fearless of those who mean us harm. Father, our relationship with you is personal, but it's not private. May we lean on the shoulders of our faith family in this process. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.